Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me, as always, Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. So I know two couples who've been together since they were teenagers, never broken up, still together. One's in their 50s, the other in their 80s. They are four of the only adult people I know who have never experienced a breakup, lucky them. For the rest of us, a relationship breakup, a separation, a divorce is no fun. If you're the one who ends the relationship, you feel guilty. I'm a monster who hurts someone I care about. Why couldn't I like her or him as much as they like me? Then you keep second guessing yourself. Did I make a huge mistake? If you're the one dumped, you feel rejected, depressed. What's wrong with me? How can I ever be happy again without them? I'll never meet anyone as perfect. During a breakup, our mental health is challenged, to put it mildly. So how do we cope? Ian, being rejected by or rejecting someone that you have an intimate relationship with, who you have trusted of course, it's going to be bad for your mental health, right? There's no getting out of it in a happy way, is there? Some people say, oh, that breakup, it was all fine. I never believed them. Yeah, I don't believe them either. Yeah. <laughs> so humans form these deep, personal, intimate attachments. That's how we function. Yeah. We let people into our worlds. We become part of the world with them. So, you know, the whole bonding kind of idea, the attachment idea, it's not a simple psychological idea. You know, you see it across all species. You see it particularly in mammals and you see it in the great apes and everything close to us is built in to form these attachments. They they support our survival. They obviously support the upbringing of children and, and the next generation. So we're built to make them. And they're good for also, us. And they're good for us. Yeah. Oh, look, if you want to live a long life, as we've discussed on many occasions, be in one. Yeah. Don't be alone. But it's a trial and error process. But who's to say? You know, we live in such a data-driven world, don't we? But the data doesn't really work here. You have a go and see if it works. Right. Back to the matchmaker. You should have let your mum decide. You should have (laughs) let others decide. You should let other people do the data matching for you. No, we don't like that. Not in the modern age. We don't like that idea of compatibility for the long term or shared interests or what will make it work through commonality. We go for the love, intoxication, attraction, some would say sex, whatever, Mm. that brings people together. And then got to live with it. And then, of course, we now live, of course, very long lives. Yeah. You made that very interesting comment, people who are lucky enough to have got together as teenagers or young adults. Well, <laughs> you know, evolutionary-wise, that might have lasted five years and then one or other might have been dead. Mm. Now, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. So there's a kind of issue about really the sustainability of those really long-term relationships. Kind of where we built for that, well, Perhaps in a biological sense, not really. <laughs> yeah. So we now have a social construct and a personal construct that runs over a much longer period. And you made a really interesting comment, I think. Many people form these relationships for the first time, obviously, as teenagers or young adults. They may not have much experience of that. They may change. The world changes. The nature of those relationships changes. So, you know, there's a really, I think, intrinsic tension in our modern society, between forming and maintaining the importance of those relationships, but just exactly over the course of a long life, is it just one? <laughs> is it just stay that way? Well, people for, change. For the overwhelming majority of people, it's it's not one. It's 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 several. And I think we'll come back a bit later on to whether we get better at breakups, whether the we we learn to deal with them uh, a little better. But 
Is it is it akin? I mean, someone who's going through a breakup, particularly the person who has been uh, dropped, to use a word I first used when I was 17. Uh, you're dropped. <laughs> you're dropped. Is it a bit like the five stages of grief? Yes. I mean, it looks from the outside as if someone is going through quite a severe depression. Yes. So grief is by far the best analogy and actually independent of whether you're the one who dropped or did the dropping. Yeah. <laughs> There's grief Actually, there's ways. grief both ways, yeah. So even though one person may be changing, moving on, doing different, forming a new relationship, whatever, there's grief and there's ongoing issues around the resolution of the breakup of the previous relationship. Interesting what you said about over life. You know, there's a lot of, in the mental health world, first cut is the deepest. You know, actually, the first time you go through it, it's really bad. So this is a huge issue often for young people where people go, oh, it's just, it's just a first relationship, doesn't matter, or it's just, you know, you'll move on, you'll find other people. Actually, going through that for the first time as a young person, it's likely to be the first time they've ever been through such a grieving thing that is so physiological and psychological and such a fundamental kind of shift in your emotional world. So there is something to be said, James, about once you've lived long enough, you've experienced grief, maybe through loss, maybe through separation, and some idea what it is, and importantly, some idea that it ends, <laughs> that yeah. you come out the other end, you know, not, and you'll be changed by the experience, but you'll be able to move on. That's much harder when it happens for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And, and similarly, if you're suffering from depression, again, one thing you would hang, try and hang on to, this is an illness and it will pass. Similar with this, this is a breakup. It happened last week. I feel terrible. Surely I'm going to feel better in a month, in a, even, a, even a few days maybe. It's interesting because a big ongoing debate in the world I live in about not confusing grief with all the states like depression. So the critics of depression say, look, you know, people like me, psychiatrists, mental health, they want to make everything an illness, all right. including grief. Yeah, it's normal. Right. So what is normal? <laughs> you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because right. you said an interesting thing. It is just like depression. It is actually something. So sure, a lot of people experience it. You don't have to be particularly prone to illness to have the experience, but boy, it's mental health-wise pretty distressing. Oh, it is. So I think what the happens- The world goes all, great. Yes. Yeah, so the world goes great. What a great expression. Mm. The pleasure goes <laughs> out of things. You, you, you should own that one. <laughs> the world goes great. That's a great way of seeing it. The color's lost. The pleasure's lost. Which is like depression. Yes. So a lot of people in my kind of world go, well, yeah, sure. It's normal. It's common. But boy, that runs the risk of trivialising it or simply saying, oh, well, you should put up with it. Like, we've all been through that. Like, get over it. Cope, move on. You know, it wasn't that important. You'll find someone else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as if it's just something, it's as if it's a sort of drive-through state. You know, you drive in, you drive out, it'll be all fine. And it's not all fine. Mm. So, you know, the resolution of issues from relationships to allow all parties to move on ain't necessarily that simple. Leading to another kind of concept, what's pathological grief? You know, what, what is it when it goes on too long or it's too deep or it's too threatening? At what point do you say, actually, you know, this is really a huge problem? One of the problems probably is when, you know, if someone you know has gone through a, a first or second breakup and is really struggling – you look back at you, uh, if, you, if you've been depressed, you look back and think, oh, that was terrible and I had to get over denying it and then I had to seek treatment and medication and therapy and do all these things and eventually I got better. You can pass all that on. But all you can say about a breakup really is, yeah, I remember them. They're really bad, but, you know, it passes. You don't really remember the same sort of practical things that you did to get over it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and I think um, people tend to do that, to immediately share their own experiences rather than necessarily empathizing with the person in right. the moment. You know, it'd be better if they stopped and remembered how bad it was to be in that situation. And it didn't sort of go easily. Before moving on to the next bit that you just raised, okay, given this has happened, what what is it practical or adaptive to do? What helps? <laughs> yeah, what helps? As distinct from what hole are you going to stay in or potentially make the situation worse? And so potentially people often do, fe- feeling rejected or feeling guilty, whatever, drink, withdraw, you know, actually do other things in their social world, get into prolonged dispute, you know, with the ex-partner and whatever else. All the stuff that people do, as you would know well from the legal side of things, James, your previous careers, how bad it can go when anger and hostility and frustration and just, you know, the hurt Mm. turns into a whole lot of maladaptive actions. Yeah. Because I'm thinking with the hurt, it's easier – well – it's kind of normal, isn't it, if you've been the one dumped to feel rejected? I mean, that's you shouldn't, and the good advice is, it, you know, it just didn't work out with that person. But on the other hand, it's normal to feel I'm not good enough for them. Well, that's one way things happen. You're going for the you've, you've split it into the dump and the dumpy. Yeah, of, you know? yeah. There's also a sense people sort of agreeing that a relationship sort of has come to an end. Yeah, there are there that's are, a minority. I mean, well, it happens. Good on them. Well, maybe it happens well, more. I think it happens more often. I, I got to say, maybe as we get older. Yes, I was going to say at different stages of life. I think mm. the, <laughs> the traditional one you're going for, who's dumped? Yeah. <laughs> in younger, I've been dumped many early, times. Early, so uh, you know, and, and some expectation, perhaps early in life, that relationships will turn over. That perhaps the first relationship you're in isn't necessarily the relationship for life. Yeah. And other opportunities and other changes and people grow up and they behave differently. I think more and more in midlife, you do see people agreeing that their relationship has come to an end. They've been, they've been living together. They're, you know, friendly enough. They've got a lot of in common, but really the relationship itself, the intimacy bit ain't there no more. Yeah. And so there's, there's less of that. However, the first point you raised is true, of course. If you're the one who has been left, the personal identity kind of set of that is pretty hard. Yeah, it's a kick in your self-esteem. Yes. I failed at that. Even though that might be wrong, that is what you might feel. I'm not good enough for them. Inevitably. Mm. So, so well, all... how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, isn't it – now, here's where cognitive stuff helps. Yeah. Okay, that's that's one way of seeing the world. Right. You, you, you've got to identify it and challenge it. Yes, and I think this is also where friends and others can be helpful. You're awesome. <laughs> perhaps. You're like, or he, she wasn't such a great person for you to be with. Well, what if they get back together? Oh, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I have a relative who works in the family law area who always warns in our family, yes. never speak too soon. Exactly. <laughs> because yeah. you don't know what happens next. But it can often what you're feeling about the relationship or the things that you're saying or whatever else – Having other people highlight that the other person has motives too, that their relationship has certain characteristics, you know, that it isn't all just about you being rejected, which is how you feel. There's a lot of stuff going on in the particular kind of way. And, that, and you know, you can get lost in your own perception of the situation. Oh. And if it's very negative, as you just said, it's really that I'm a failure, I've been rejected. It may be more complicated than that. 
Yeah. So as with all cognitive things, challenging some of the ideas or looking at a broader set of options of what might be going on can be helpful. Mm, mm. And I think it's natural too, if you've been in a relationship and then it's ended, you kind of idealize, Id- no, idolize the relationship. You look at it through rose-tinted glasses. You think it was perfect, the other person was perfect because it's not available anymore. Yeah, so people tend to flip between two things, the idealization and the total devaluation. Right. It was perfect. Yes. No, it was terrible. It was perfect. <laughs> No, it was terrible. And I can direct friends and other relatives. The danger is getting to that same thing. <gasps> You'll never find another person like that. No, you should have never married him in the first place. <laughs> Told you that. You know. So that kind of um, flipping between those two extreme states mm. is pretty common in these kind of situations. It's interesting to talk about um, people rushing back to being in relationships and reforming them again. You know, wanting to go back to the start again. <laughs> no, we got back together again. It's all perfect. You know, and then actually, two weeks later, it's not perfect. Again, so there's a lot of turbulence. There's a lot of backwards and forwards at that time. Again, that's one of the incredible uncertainties because if you knew the relationship was over forever, if the person had been abducted by aliens, you could say, right, it's not happening anymore. I've There are things I can do. But if they're still there, you don't really know. Like so many relationships break up and get back together. You don't really know if this is the end or alternatively, this is just a break for two weeks and you'll look back on it and laugh. So it's very hard to know what to do. Do I act on the basis it's all over or do I act on the basis that I want it to, to continue and make myself available for that? Right. As I've heard people say on more than one occasion, death is so much easier. If, <laughs> well, he, was just, if he was just as oh, angry or hostility, if he was just dead, I could cope with this. Right. But he's not dead. Mm, he's, dumped, he's dumped me. Yeah, yeah, and he's still there. And we still have children or we still have interests or we still have whatever else. And there's this whole kind of thing. It would be easier to cope with and move on if there was real certainty in that. Now, of course, that's also an interesting kind of thing because it goes back to an earlier comment I made. I don't think people really stop and think about this enough. The extent to which that person and who they are and the whole thing has been incorporated into your own identity. In your head, you want to say, we've moved on, it's separate, whatever else. But emotionally, internally, it's not like that. Mm. You know, you've incorporated that whole experience into who you are. Yeah. <laughs> not that simple to go and disentangle the whole thing or to not only that, to want it back. Whatever was good about the thing in the first place, I want it back. I want to revisit what we were good at, what mm. got us together, what mm. we had in common and maintain or rebuild or reshape. So earlier stage of my career when I was somewhat tied up with doing sort of marital and couples therapy in relation to treating depression. This is an endlessly complicated kind of issue, you know, coming to counselling to save the relationship and people wanting to start all over again. We can fix it. It's kind of broken, but we can fix it. And you go, by, by going back and starting again? Don't think so. Is there a going forward or not? might be more of an open question. Are there things that are, you know, it, it isn't really, someone has acted precipitously to kind of end the relationship, mm. but the relationship isn't really over on either party. Yeah. Whereas actually in a lot of situations, of course, it is already over. One party has moved on, but the other party hasn't. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of interactions to get one back or reform it or engage in something or as a, part, or as a form of compromise to engage in some sort of counselling. So a lot of the marital counselling, as people know me well, Ended up being separation counselling, mm. not getting it right, but actually being able to get into a mental state 
where actually people could move on mm. without hostility or without anger or and and start to reconstruct. But a part of that's the recognition of just really, really how important. So you might be rationally deciding to do one thing. But emotionally <laughs> Jeez, it doesn't feel like that. It. Yeah, it's, mm. it's emotionally hard. Yeah, yeah. And also there might, particularly if you've been in a relationship for a while, it would be natural to think, can I cope on my own? Am I actually, you know, I'm so used to being part of a unit. Right. So going back to where we started, there is this kind of idea, oh, sure, you're in a relationship, and now you're out of the relationship, you should cope on your own. I go, hang on. Most of us don't cope on our own most of the time. Mm. And this is the probably the thing or the structure, the relationship, that you've most invested in. It has been an essential part of your coping with the world, you and the other person and you and the relationship, you know, against the world, the way you've constructed it. So you've just lost one fundamental aspect, one fundamental component of how you yourself do cope with the world. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, moving on on your own. It's a pretty challenging kind of idea. I hear lots of people these days say, oh, no, I'm so much better on my own, doing things on my own. I go, yeah, it's really interesting. You can make your own decisions, yes. <laughs> but are you actually better off? Are you actually mm. enjoying that more? Um, are better things happening? No, but at least I'm in control of my own world. I go, yes, but. <laughs> so in terms of helping to get through this difficult period, you've talked about cognitive strategies and identifying when you are perhaps making uh, exaggerated conclusions about yourself, I wasn't good enough and, and things like that and identifying them and challenging them. What are some other things you can do, behavioral things, emotional things that will help you get through? Right. So just like with the uh, death and dying issue, the appropriate expressions of grief. Yeah. Right. So I do think one of the things our society is bad at are the appropriate expressions of grief. We still have just been uh, in the United States and the United Kingdom and stuff in recent times in these low emotional expression environments. Oh, <laughs> People are right. always being rational all the time. Mm. I love to go to Southern Europe and Latin countries where people cry and carry on and wave about and make it pretty clear in daily life how they feel about things, not just what they think about things. Right. So I think one of the things here where people are often angry and they're, and they're upset, the danger of particular relationship stuff is to get into anger and to get into frustration and to get into really non It's distinct from sit down and cry, sit down and be with people, get out. Photos and stuff. Now, this is common in the grief world as well. Photos. Photos. You, you know the person you just point up with? Who's yeah. got the wedding photos? Who's got the other photos? Here's, where's the photos of the good times? You know, where's the stuff that says, actually, whatever happens. Isn't that just going to make you sad looking at all of them? It's going to make you cry. Sad? I'm going further than sad. Oh, you think that's good? <laughs> yes. Whew. Okay. I can see you get out now. James, not totally on board with this concept. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of see what you mean, I guess. To but value... To value what has been good about the right. But do you really want to value it when you're really sad that it's lost? Right. I'm going with the you can't actually grieve it unless, unless you, you understand the value of it yeah. and the history of it. And in a sense, uh, it, there's a closure kind of idea. You're trying to say the thing has a natural life. It had a origin, it had a birth, it had good periods, it was really good, it's gone through other phases. And now it's reached some sort of conclusion. Right. And that's got to do with seeing the whole picture. The person you loved, you now don't totally just hate. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> the lives just be together. The dangerous people go back and reconstruct their whole life and say it was all bad. Yeah. Or others. You should have never married the guy. <laughs> you know, you should have never had children. You should have blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. And devalue. Go, try to cope by devaluing the whole experience. 
very unproductive. But the other, at the other end of the spectrum is that relationship was so great and I was really alive and really myself and we understood each other so well and now it's gone and not, I'll never experience that again. I, I have friends and I have other people I talk to, but it's not as good as with this person who's now gone. So how apparently, do you deal with that? Well, apparently there are people, I mean, I don't know many of them, that have been in the perfect relationship. <laughs> I've never met many of them. Right. But, you know, most of us, I think, would concede, right. you know, relationships have their really good aspects mm. and they have their challenging aspects. That, that So it's trying to develop and, and the grieving process does depend on this, a realistic kind of appreciation mm. of the totality of that. Okay, so I'm encouraging, to some extent, re-experiencing or, or recognising the good aspects because right at the moment, probably the bad aspects. No, I, I don't necessarily agree with you. Yeah. I mean, particularly I you <laughs> well, particularly if you're the one rejected, I, I'd go back to that point that you tend to idealise the relationship and think it was perfect and think you've, you've lost something that's incredibly valuable and allows you to unlock all these parts of your personality that no one else can unlock in you. and Good. So the, the, let's go with that, that part. Yeah. I agree with you. Relati hopefully you have grown in the relationship. Hopefully you are a better person. I say to a number of people I live with, I'm so glad I live with you. I'm, I'm clearly a better person as a consequence. Mm. That's true. That yes, us? I do. do it's true. Good. It is. It's not only that, people around me tell me it's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. <laughs> others, others say it louder than I do. So, yeah, it's been good. Good. That doesn't mean it's been perfect. No. So so getting a sort of – Balance. Balance, yeah, getting to a point of a particular thing. So I think my earlier point, people tend to – in this state where they're very emotionally disturbed, tend to fluctuate mm. wildly from day to day. And then because of that, they make decisions on particular days when in one extreme state or the other and then draw conclusions like the one you just drew – It'll never be nothing good will ever happen again. Yeah, I can never form a relationship again. Or I'm going to fight that person in court for the next twenty years because I'm so angry and I'm so hurt and so rejected by them, mm. and they are the worst person in the whole world. And you know, you see these extremes. I'm never going to let the children see that kid again, uh, that dad again, or I'm, you know, I'm going to cut off all contact with his family or somebody else. And you know, people make all sorts of dramatic decisions yeah. when they're in that emotional state, which are really unhelpful to them and those around them. So, uh, you know, I'm sort of encouraging people to reflect on the whole of the relationship. Yeah, right. Now, in a lot of situations, on balance, it will have been good, but it's reached an end for a particular set of reasons. If you're of an anxious temperament, and a, a change in your future, a job ends, school ends, you, you get given four weeks' notice to move out of your house. Any of those things can spark anxiety about the future. What's going to happen to me? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do next? A relationship's the same. So I would imagine if, you, if you've got a propensity to anxiety, this would act as a, a trigger and a spike. What will happen to me? I thought I was in this relationship that would last for a long time. Now I'm all alone. Yes. So one of the problems is knowing yourself. Mm. Okay, so if you are more anxious, if you are more sensitive about rejection, if it's been hard to form relationships and you've had one of these particular things and it's gone badly or it's ended and certainly not your wish that it's ended, then concern about ever being back in a relationship again, ever finding anything worth getting involved with again. And in some senses, I think you do see being reluctant to engage in the future for fear of being abandoned again. 
Oh, so it is this, I, I, I tried love, didn't work out for me, had my heart broken. I'm not avoiding doing that again. Not doing that again. Right. That went really badly. Yeah. That really hurt. You know, it wasn't easy for me to form that in the first place. Don't do that easily. I don't uh, let other people in easily. I don't attach easily. But boy, when it, um, and that falls apart, that really hurts. So I'm not going to expose myself again to that risk. I mean, I, I would imagine that's relatively common in the months uh, after a relationship ends, but do some people really withdraw for, you know, years? Yes. Mm. Clearly. Clearly. So, and I think it goes back to this is- issue that it's harder for humans than we imagine to form these longer-term relationships and break them and start again. It's not that easy. Mm. So some who've been really affected by that or are more anxious about it don't do that kind of easily, having done it once or twice or whatever, are very reluctant to engage again. And you hear a lot of people talk in the modern world about, oh, I'm so much better at living on my own now. I much prefer to be in control yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. And you go kind of, kind of often like, What's happened? Like, like, how'd you come to that conclusion? Mm. And they'll often tell you about one or two or something. Some really critical sets of relationships that were really good, but having lost them, have lost confidence, have are afraid of finding themselves in the same situation because it was so distressing. Yeah, it was so good to be in a relationship, but so bad to. It's a risk. It's a risk. Sure is. It's a risk. So anxiety and risk, James. Back to uh, I don't know. Oh yeah. Of these many episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Do you take the risk? It's the exposure issue, or do you become afraid? Yeah. Of the consequence. If I get involved again, I'll just lose it again. Mm. Therefore, I'll avoid getting involved. Is there a way of taking the risk again but being you – maybe you're a bit more careful with your heart? Well, you said an interesting thing. I think it's do people learn. Yeah. Is it somewhat easier, second, third, whatever? <laughs> How many times did Elizabeth Taylor get married? I remember six times or something. I, yeah. I saw someone recently – some Hollywood celebrity was up to number four or five recently. Mm. You know – some people have done this sort of stuff over and over again. But, but most, most of us don't. I would, well, I would imagine if you go from when you're a teenager to later in life, most people would have five, six, seven, this is just a guess, relationships, wouldn't they? So now, going back to uh, we live long lives, mm. you're going to say, yes, people are going to have more likely these days to have had series of relationships, intimate relationships, live with people, not necessarily got married in the first instance. Yeah. In their youth, then they're likely to have had some longer periods of intimate relationships, which may or may not have ended. So, yeah, the reality is now there's going to be some number, like the number you were talking about, Mm. of serious relationships Mm. that people have had over the course of their life. So, this is the psychological learn bit I really like. Or what a very famous Australian psychiatrist of Scottish origin, Scott Henderson, remarked as psychological immunization. You've been exposed once, (laughs) you've learned to do it. You adapt the next time it happens a lot better than the, because you've learned out of the experience. And is that conscious or unconscious? Like I can't remember thinking, right, this happened last time in a relationship, so I'm going to do this. But I think there was some unconscious learning that perhaps helped me a little bit over the yes, years. Yes, I think it's uh, – yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've learnt by experience whether you've thought about it or not. Yeah. So I say in that sense, yes. Because the, the bit like you said about depression, the experience is now familiar to you. If you experience grief, if you lost somebody close to you, you've learned through that. You've had the experience, so you have learned. Whether you've learned enough out of it, whether you've learned enough to actually forward plan, oh, therefore, this time around, I should do this and not that, mm. that's a bit more sort of cognitive. But yes, there is an experiential kind of aspect to it. Having, having, And I think it's true of human experience or human learning. Yeah, we do. We learn best often by experience. It's a bad way of putting it, isn't it? <laughs> you kind of got to go through it. 
Yeah. To have a better idea what it's really like and hopefully, hopefully learn to do the adaptive things and have learned what are the mistakes. Yeah. Now, before we talk about dealing with the guilt of being the one who ends a relationship, are there any other behavioral things, those going through the really painful stages of this relationship ended and I didn't want it to? I presume things like trying to do exercise, taking care of your body clock, getting out in the sun, being with other people who you feel comfortable with, all those things that you always say are important. For, for anxiety and depression, everything else remain important. For this one, being with others yeah. who you care about, who care about you. All those other ones still count, but for this one, the being with others one. So a lot of people in this situation really do retreat. They're not picking up the phone. They don't mm-hmm. want to talk to anyone. They're feeling terrible about the situation. They disappear. That's a, it's, it's actually one of those times, as, as with grief more generally, despite the fact that the last thing in the world you want to do is be with other people. Make yourself do it. And if you're on the other side, if you're assisting someone in this situation, go around, cook dinner, take out, go for a walk with, just be with. Now, then, without necessarily harassing the person, <laughs> right? without necessarily forcing them to talk, forcing them to, or, or getting involved in, yeah, he was a terrible person anyway, I'm so glad you got rid of him, or the relationship was – without sort of trying to be on their side in some way, because in fact the the – Cognitive thing you said about feeling terrible about yourself is really important. Yes. When you spend time with people who really do care about you, whether they're family, they're friends, they're people you're close to, inevitably those people are expressing something positive about their relationship with you mm. and the importance of you to that relationship. There are other relationships we're all in, hopefully, in addition here. And getting positive feedback or affirmation from those relationships, people know you're really suffering, suffering and it's really hard so spending time with people. So if you're on the assisting someone, get in there. If you're the person that happened to, pick, up, pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah. let, people, let people take you to dinner. Let people cook for you. Let people take you for a walk on the beach. Just doing stuff without feeling obliged to talk about it. Mm. If you want to talk about it, fine. Yeah. But, you know, just the being with bit. So it's a time when you need other people around you. So that, that being with others for this kind of life stress for this kind of thing is particularly high priority. Is there a good way to, if you know you want the relationship to end and the other person you think doesn't want it to end, everyone agonize, what's the best way to do it? Is there a best way? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I think the honesty thing, in, in most of those situations, the person who wants to break up the relationship has their own motivation for that. But often it's about the flaws in the other person. Like, you'll do this, you'll do that. You don't want to tell them that. I mean, there is some truth in the cliche that the best way to do it is it's not you, it's me, but no one believes that. Right. So the extent to which that's true <laughs> or on reflection. You said earlier on, which I think is, is, is true. Hopefully in relationships you're a better person as a consequence. Yeah. If you're in a relationship where you're actually becoming a worse person, you know, it's like the relationship and the dynamic of the relationship is making you more angry, more hostile, more aggressive, whatever, you know, and it's really bad for you because you're doing stuff in that relationship, which is bad for everybody. Then that's kind of – that's okay, I think, to kind of say without, without blaming the other person. <laughs> often, again, to go back to the um, marital and interpersonal world, I'd often use the expressions about not you but the relationship – 
it, the relationship right. yes, that's a good point. causes me to be more like this. The relationship causes me to do sort of particular things. Rather I don't than, like rather than he. Yeah, not he you makes did, me. You didn't make me. Our our, our yeah. dynamic. Yeah, the relationship, the what the the space between us. Neither of us probably wants to be that way, but the space between us is like that. And and I need to be out of that. I, I'm making choices to be out of that, which is not hopefully just a criticism of the other. <laughs> Mm. But it might be a critique. You, you said an important thing, James. It may be a genuine critique of the relationship, and the relationship therefore needs to come to an end. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting because it's a debate that often goes on. Sometimes people need to be brave to leave relationships. Oh, the easier thing. The easier thing is just to persist. Yeah. And persisting in a very dysfunctional situation, right? So if someone decides to end a particular relationship you know, to take steps. They're often subject to the most criticism because they're the one who ended mm. it. But actually, it might be the brave thing to do. It may actually be a mutual benefit. Yeah. Even though the decision's been made by one rather than the other. So I haven't seen this in really dysfunctional relationships. I mean, just sort of I bet. really dysfunctional relationships where actually I would say the brave grown-up person decides to end mm. the relationship, which is actually bad or has reached its end, maybe and maybe toxic for both. Ian, I don't want to do the podcast anymore. <laughs> You've given that's me it. the courage that's to it. say it. it. That's it. Oh, well, that's an interesting thing. You know, you know, I was watching some TV thing. I was going to go into episode ten. Oh, you know, the series ten of episode. Oh, for God's sake, couldn't they have killed it after four? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but work relationships can be work the same, can't they? Yes. Yeah. But I, I still think we're in the. Loving in fact, we, we, we'll, we'll work at it. We'll work at it. <laughs> um, so you've done the courageous thing. You know it's right, but it is still natural to feel guilty and also to second guess yourself and think, "Have I made the biggest mistake of my life?" That's just natural, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And let's face it, you probably have hurt the other person. Yeah. And you may well be breaking previous vows, commitments, agreements, understandings. Yeah. Unless you're a psychopath, you should feel a bit bad about it. Correct. Mm. If you don't, that's a very interesting comment. If you don't feel bad about yeah. it. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm a bit worried. Yeah. yeah. And, and that can be hard to kind of sort out because people go, well, what are you feeling bad about? You're the one who did it. Mm. I go, yeah, I know, but, and for the following reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't change the fact that you I, still recognize that that's had implications for others. Yeah, and, I, and I hurt her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are hurt. As a, and I'm the one taking the action. I'm mm. clearly the one who has precipitated the action, and there are a lot of consequences of that. So that, like, the, that's an interesting thing, James, because I think much more emphasis is often put on the person who's been left or is yeah. distressed or is abandoned, you know, because clearly it's not of their choosing, and, and the psychological consequences of that are big. But there are psychological consequences for those who do, including trying to sort through is that a uh, reasonable set of actions. Again, I kind of think it's a really interesting thing with friends and others at the extent to which other people avoid being critical or judgmental. Mm. The people who do take the action are not likely, to, generally speaking, you know, people are going to assume they're doing what they want to do. Mm. So you've raised a really interesting issue. Often they're feeling bad about it too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, you did you say definitely because I, I think a lot of people don't think that. Oh, okay. They think, oh, well... <laughs> He, she's moved on. They got a new relationship. They made decisions. They're feeling great. Well, perhaps yes about moving on with their life differently, but no, 
most people in that situation would be aware of the harm and the hurt that they've caused to others. And that's something they've got to come to terms with. Okay. So then you feel guilty, you feel bad, but you also start doubting yourself, have I made a terrible mistake? And some people have made terrible mistakes, right? And they get back together and they live happily ever after or happily ever after for another five years at least. How do you work out whether your sort of doubts about whether the breakup was a good idea was just normal doubts, grass is greener on the other side, or you actually have made a mistake? Wow. Is that a hard question or not? Because people, right, people are right in the situation, you know, two days in, one week in, you know, it's like it's like a pinball machine. They're bouncing all over the exactly. place. You know, they've got no idea yeah. what might happen next week. No idea whether they've made the most important decision of their life or the worst decision they're ever going to make. And no idea whether in a week's time they're going to regret it or in a year's time they really should have done differently mm. or whatever. So in the moment or in that period, you can't know the answer to that. Yeah. So I think this, you know, that's an interesting thing about sitting with uncertainty. Lots of people to resolve anxiety or to resolve particular things, they want the issue to be decided, yes or no, when actually the answer is, uh, not really sure. Mm. Think I'm going down the path I need to go down. <laughs> Let's just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. With, so, what, what, again, people often do extreme things at that point, which make the situation worse. Mm. To try and make it definite. <laughs> So, to try and make it clear, you know, try and break it. You yeah. know, that kind but it, of- it, I, I suppose so what you say is just accepting there will be a period of uncertainty and not kind of- Emotional turmoil. And not expecting everything to be clear. Like just accepting, I don't know if I've done the right thing and just accepting that that is a pretty normal thing to feel. Exactly. So when someone in a situation says to you, and I've moved on, I think, <laughs> I'd go- Okay. 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 Well, that's pretty much that's pretty much how it is. Let's just yeah. let's see. Uh, you know, it can understand and it can people can articulate and describe what's kind of going on. But I think it's a classic, as with grief and other things. People want certainty. You know, a person's died. Yeah, get course. over it. You know, you've left the job. Get over it. Our emotional worlds just aren't like that. Mm. And in this situation, there is, in many situations, real uncertainty. Well, I think the word you used earlier summed it up beautifully: turbulence. <laughs> Yes. Strap yourself in. Put on the seatbelt. It's going to be a rough ride. It's going to be a rough ride. Talking, when you hear the captain in the plane go, he's put his seatbelt on. <laughs> talking about air travel, if you want to, uh, to listen to a song that sums up this perfectly, in the Stephen Sondheim musical company, there is a song called Barcelona. The hero who's single spends the night with a flight attendant who's got to fly to Barcelona the next morning. And there's this beautiful song between them where he keeps begging her to stay, cancel your flight, don't go, don't go to Barcelona, I've got to go. And then eventually she says, okay, I'll cancel my flight. And he goes, oh. (laughs) Like as soon as she commits, he's terrified. And it it kind of sums it up quite well. Well, it is an interesting thing. We... You think resolution, people think definite decisions is going to resolve the emotional turbulence. Mm. If you just make it clear, if you just move out, if you just send the divorce papers, if you just do something else, yeah. move cities or whatever, that will fix it. Then we'll all move on. Mm. That, the, that the resolution is in some dramatic action in this short period of time, in the, in the initial sort of period. You know, the good thing about calling grief normal and other things normal is there's a sense of time. You aren't going to you can say to people who've lost someone close to them, you aren't going to be normal in the next three months, six months. You might, in 12 months' time, mm. be feeling better about it. If it's a long relationship. 
if it's meaningful and important. Yeah. And in some ways, I think this is a similar situation. There's going to be turbulence. And in fact, there may not even be resolution because the situation may be very fluid, as, mm. as you've described. Mm. So I, I think everyone tries to push everyone towards rapid resolution of the situation. Right. Everyone else trying to be helpful is often unhelpful. And yet that balances against what you say is that you should still be around people. Yeah. To be supportive, yes. you bet, to affirm that your relationship with them right. is ongoing. Mm -hmm. You value them, they value you. That's all ongoing. Whatever else happens, that hasn't – one but of the Stop telling them to get over it. Stop I'll telling get them to get over it. it. Well, the other thing that happens is often friends and other relatives take sides. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that's common. Yeah, right. As, a, as an act of affirmation with one side or the other. I mean, I can understand it if you are particular friends with one of the people more than you are with the other. You want to be there and support them and be sympathetic. Oh, yes, he's a bastard, all that sort of stuff. But if you're friends with both of them, it's very hard. So staying friends, and this, I'd say this is often true of families in this situation, mm. where people have been incorporated into families, been part of families, and whatever. on one hand, wanting to be very supportive of the person who is your direct kin and exclude the other seems like in a tribal way, the more obvious thing to do, beware, be careful. Because actually often these people are often important in all of our wider lives. You know, so sometimes you can see people who've maintained all sorts of relationships with wider sets of kin and wider sets of groups, despite the fact that the primary relationship has broken down. That, that sort of stuff from a social point of view and emotional point of view is really, really kind of important. Yeah. So We've been talking about the impact on the person themselves, but but I guess my wider kind of message is to everyone around these situations, you know, be supportive. Yeah. It's hard. And final question, is there a general kind of guideline about is it better not to see the person or is it better to see them? You want to see them because you had this intimate relationship with them. You told them things you didn't tell anyone else. You felt safe and you trusted them. Now you can't see them anymore and you miss them. But does seeing them just kind of drag out the process? It kind of, you know, okay, I'm I'm on three out of 10 at recovery. I just saw them. Now I've got to go back and start at zero again because I realized how much I like them. Yeah, so if you want to make the turbulence worse. <laughs> keep seeing them? Keep seeing them, text. Really? Yeah, yeah. But I would make the comments partly about uh, the more serious business of what I was doing a lot previously in life, relationship counselling. Mm. Seeing people on neutral ground, being able to talk about things on neutral ground and in safe places and safe circumstances, partly for practical reasons, but partly for ex explanation, partly for being able to dialogue about what's happened without getting dragged into a complete emotional storm. Yeah. Again. But also the, the makeup sex is, uh, I don't know, people say there's an there's extra- There's a lot of children born out of makeup sex. Yeah, an extra zing to it because of the yeah. kind of emotional yeah. tension. Yeah. And that would reset you back to if you've still broken up, oh, we just had this great thing. and Yeah. So you avoid that unless you know it's back on. If, if In principle. <laughs> <laughs> the principle you just espoused is a very important one. <laughs> I don't know that anyone's going to follow that advice. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So trying to trying to transact as a person by, by moving the degree of emotionality or the degree of intimacy, make mm -hmm. up sex, all those kind of things back into the particular things, which just just increase. This is yeah. the kind of this is the hard bit. I think the really hard bit is is the relationship really over? Exactly. Exactly. And needing to like get a 
needing to get the answer to that. Mm. You know, like a COVID test, the lines aren't there. There should be a test for that. Like, okay, is this a temporary breakup or is it definitely over? So why this whole relationship breakup thing is so much more complicated in many ways than death. If the other yeah, person's right. dead, you got the relationship's it. over. Yeah. Very hard to move on, very tragic, very sad, but it's clear. In this situation, it's not clear. There is no little pink line. There is no pregnancy test. There's no COVID test. You know, there's uncertainty. Yes. So not doing things in that situation, which puts you at further risk in, in the thing. So I think I was trying to say, like, you probably inevitably need to transact things. But if you can move them into less emotionally charged areas and perhaps even have some dialogue about these things without getting drawn into makeup sex or back relationships all back on again and then two days later everyone's moved out again or there's mm. a brawl or there's, you know, the turbulence. You don't want to make it worse yeah. if you can avoid it, which is fine in theory, but in practice it's really hard. And, and I suppose if you are going to get back together, then the thing to do is to work out why we broke up. Is that just going to happen three months down the track or alternatively – have we worked through that issue, you know, held it up to the light and said, okay, we can get back together because we broke up because of that, but I'm going to be more like this and you've said you're going to be less like that. I think that's the counselling stroke communication kind of thing. Yeah. So I think in a good way, while I was saying that most of the people who ever saw me ended up breaking up, other people see other really good counsellors where they actually do improve their communication, they do improve and they they reevaluate where they're at and come to some more mature agreement about where their relationship is actually act to improve it. Going mm-hmm. back to the relationship can actually be improved so we can continue together. Mm-hmm. We can't continue together if the relationship doesn't improve, but we could agree about ways that would substantially improve it that we'd both stay or want to be in it. So I think this kind of issue of where there is real uncertainty and there's difficulty and there's confusion, that's actually where the kind of counselling, safe space to have these discussions can happen and people can work out better where to go with less acrimonious outcomes with less maladaptive consequences. All right. If this uh, episode is particularly relevant to you, hang in there. Things will get better. If you've got any questions, comments, want to suggest further topics for us, please send us an email at mindingyourmind2. That's mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. The book version of Minding Your Mind written by Ian and myself is available that covers lots of the things we discuss in this podcast. And our podcast is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14.